Okay. Um, you guys can have your hats on. It's Friday anyway. You're supposed to have them on, I guess. Is it? I don't know. Is that a thing? It's not. Okay. We'll just wait for the selfies real quick. No worries. You're good. What? Wait. Oh, okay. It's just the way it goes on. All right. Um, ignore my drink. They couldn't find my drink, so they're like, here, you seem like you drink something pink. I'm like, thank you. It's free, so I took it. All right. So, um, I apologize again for the last lecture where we kind of just like dictated through it. Um, because like I said, there's only a few things that are really pertinent in your exam and also uh, in your everyday life when we're practicing medicine. Now is going to be the fun part. Now is going to be stuff that you're really going to need to know, you really need to focus in on, especially when you go into the rotations and uh, things like that. So obviously, um, chest pain and cardiovascular uh, emergencies are going to be pretty uh, prominent uh, when you come into the emergency room because they're the ones that can uh, essentially kill you, right? So chest pain in itself actually is something that is very common complaint. I'll tell you every day that I'm in the ER, if I see 10 patients, three of them for sure are chest pain. Uh, it's one of the most common reasons that people go into the emergency room for. Um, most of the times, though, um, obviously the first diagnosis that we're thinking about when we think about chest pain is a heart attack, right? And then number two would be like pulmonary embolisms and things like that. And again, uh, since the beginning of time since I started teaching you, it, you have to treat the patient, not, not just the chief complaint, not just, you know, the labs, not just the numbers. Treat the patient as a whole. Think about everything because whatever you don't think about, you're going to miss. Okay, and whatever you don't know, you're gonna miss. So that's why we literally tell you when you're in school, learn everything, know everything for sure. It's not my echo, right? Okay. Uh, so you have to understand, though, uh, most of the times, believe it or not, e even experts, even emergency medicine PAs and doctors do miss MIs, and that's because they get so focused on what an MI should look like. Nothing should look like anything. Everything is different. No one patient is the same as the other. That's why medicine is not black and white. It's super great. It could be anything at any time to anyone. Okay, that's really important to you, you understand that. For instance, 5% of patients that have actually had an MI got sent home. And then it was discovered later that they actually had an MI when they were here in the first visit. So keep in mind that. Did you cover all the bases? Did you ask all the right questions? Did you use all the right calculators, right? Like, especially with when it comes to MIs, did you use the heart score? Did you use the Timmy score? These are things that will eventually, that if you do, for whatever reason, miss an MI, whatever it is, you covered yourself. You say, hey, it did cross my mind, but it's because the patient didn't have this, the patient didn't have this, the patient didn't have this, didn't have this, and I assured them that you can always come back. So that's when you start to look, look uh, like the good person there. Um, most of the times these things get missed because of what? Inexperience. So that's why some of us are, are all go home and go on, hey, I, I want to get into the ER right after, right after I graduate. It's not a thing because it's very difficult to do that. You have to be, <clears throat> not that none of you are special, but you have to be extremely special. Like you got to be really on top of it and have that drive and not want to sleep, not want to... Uh, you know, take a rest, not think about anything else but emergency medicine out of PA school. Um, and even then, like I would tell you myself, my drive was, I was, I'm going to be honest with you, like you could not match my drive. Even then I couldn't get a job in the ER, right? Because I was young or whatever, this and that. But there's reasons to that. 
they know that because you haven't seen the bad and the good, you're going to miss the bad. Okay? So if I haven't seen what a heart attack does not look like, I'm not going to know what a heart attack does look like. And what that means is basically not everybody comes with chest pain and pain that radiates to the left arm and radiates to the neck. It's the other people that you pick off that you would not be able to pick off if you didn't have experience. Not in the books, not in the exam, in your experience. So if you don't have experience, that does mean a lot. Now, there are, again, there are ways to bypass that and you could tell you know, people like, look, uh, you know, when I was in the, you know, when I was in school, I did three rotations in the ER. How do you do that? Well, you do the ER rotation, and you sneak another rotation in the ER some other way, and then you do elective in the ER, and, and I had that. So even then, it has to be something where you have to show why you, okay, and, and why not you. That, that's really what you got to sell. Other than that, I would tell you it's an amazing field, okay? Um, so with that, like I said, with every other chief complaint that comes to you, every chief complaint that comes to you, you have to have at least 20 differentials, just based off the, the chief complaint. Maybe more, probably more, right? And then when it comes down to an HBI, and you start asking, when did the pain start? How long did the pain start? What type of pain is it? Where is the pain? Does it radiate? What makes it better? What makes it worse? Those questions alone should take you to 12 differential diagnoses. And then, what past medical history do you have? What, do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you do any drugs? Any recent travel? You know, and just by that, I'm ruling out a bunch of other differentials. Then I'll do a physical exam, and just by that, you should get down to six or seven differentials. And then you order your labs, and then you order your, your imaging to get to the final diagnosis or the clinical impression. That's how you play medicine anywhere. The good thing about the other, the other specialties is that when you're in internal medicine, you're already presented with it. Everything's been done in the emergency room, or most of everything's been done in the emergency room. The rest is up to you. So that's the beauty of emergency medicine is that you really are the detective. You really are trying to say, it's this, it's not this, this is not that because of this, this is this because of this, or we think it's this. So with all those differentials, Chest pain could be anything. There's, we just remember that the heart is in the metastinum, but the esophagus is there, the bones are there, the lungs are there, the stomach is there. All these things can mimic the same type of pain. A heart attack could not even give you chest pain, and it could give you nausea. And we talked about this before, because the vagus nerve goes from the back of the throat through the heart and to the stomach, so sometimes you don't know if the nausea is from something in the stomach or something in the heart. And that's why it's always fun to play that game a little bit. Okay? So chest pain could be from anywhere. It could be pneumonia. How many times you get chest pain with pneumonia, right? Uh, this was a huge thing in COVID. Everybody came in with, with a cough, but chest pain. And so what do you do, right? You have to start now using your intellect and being like, okay, can this really be COVID? Or is this a pneumonia from COVID? Or is this a pulmonary embolism that we've been seeing with COVID? So you have to start playing the game. Who and where and why and who I need to really do a D-dimer on anybody. D-dimers went, if there was a stock in D-dimer, you must have like invested in it because everybody was doing one. The problem with doing one during COVID was it's inflammation that's happening in your body, right. so it's gonna be elevated. Everybody with COVID had an elevated D-dimer. That doesn't mean everybody with COVID had a pulmonary embolism, but it's something that then you have to start thinking like, okay, what are my other scores that I could use? The PERC score, the Wells criteria. These things, again, your intellect needs to start coming into play. 
Um, other things like in the stomach, ulcers, reflux, hiatal hernias, right? Patients with, with asthma can also have chest pain, chest tightening, right? Patients that are having an aortic dissection can have chest pain as well. The biggest one, I'll tell you right now, that always gets missed by students, okay, not somebody that's already a, a provider is because they have gone through this already, is that you'll, you'll palpate a patient's chest and they're like, oh yeah, it hurts. I'm like, oh, I think it's costochondritis. Okay, let's do an EKG. EKG's normal times two, troponin's normal times two, heart sounds normal, everything is great. And you're like, yeah, I think it's costochondritis. Every time I touch her here, it's basically where the pain is. Like, okay, cool, what does her skin look like? I didn't do that. That is the worst thing. Uh, it's not the worst thing, but like when a student comes and sits down like, all right, I got it. 53-year-old male comes in with left-sided chest pain, started da-da-da-da. You give me a whole old chart, but it comes down to the physical exam, lungs sound great, heart sounds great, and then if I ask you, what does the chest look like? And you could have missed shingles. And now we're sending somebody home with shingles and they're gonna spread it to the world, right? So stay focused, stay focused. Look at everything that's happening with the patient. You do what you know, just do what you know, right? And do everything when you don't know anything. That's, that's gonna start making more sense. Right now it just sounds like I'm Yoda up here, but like it's gonna make more sense when you see the patient in front of you, right? And you see, okay, well, the first thing I do to a patient's chest is examine. This is not the same inspection that you do in your OSCE. Okay. Um, I already did that, right? So stay focused, stay focused. Look at what's happening and the only way you're gonna be able to do this again is to by doing it again and again and again and again. That's the only way you're gonna get really good at it, okay? But understand, yes, although an MI can cause chest pain, so can an arrhythmia, so can mitral valve prolapse that we've talked about in the past as well, right? Pericarditis, but then you ask them, what makes the pain better? What makes the pain worse? Oh, the pain, um, it's better when I lean forward. Okay, probably not an MI. I also had flu like two weeks ago. Okay, we're really keying in on pericarditis here, right? And then now I'm not looking for an EKG to show me STEMI. I'm looking for an EKG to show me what? ST elevations throughout the whole uh, EKG, right? And those are the things that you start looking for. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the boards as well, right? So these are potentially life-threatening causes of chest pain. MI, angina, aortic dissections, pulmonary embolisms, pneumothorax, uh, perforated discus, cocaine-induced MIs, arrhythmias, these are all things that can kill you, okay? So these have to be on top of your list. You cannot, so when you are discharging a patient with chest pain, how do you do this without lab work? Simple, patient has two negative troponin enzymes, two negative EKGs, patient has no recent travel, I'm ruling out a PE, patient does not take any hormonal uh, you know, therapy, patient doesn't do any drugs, doesn't smoke, has no hypertension, and right there, without blood work, I'm ruling this out. Patient has no abdominal pain. Patient has no reflux, just ruled out perforated discus. Patient has no vomiting at this time, no nausea at this time. So, no this, no, no, no. Now you're like, okay, well, every time I have to do this? No. You do it once, twice, three times on a patient, you make it a template. You go, well, okay, insert negative chest pain. When I do that, insert negative chest pain, it tells you everything the patient does not have. And that's important in your documentation, in any specialty. What does the patient have is easy. That's two lines. What does the patient not have is important because then that's what, like, hey, you missed this. I told you, you're never going to get sued 
for something you did. You will get sued for something you didn't do or something you missed, okay? It's really, really important. So other that are not life-threatening, right? Mitral valve prolapse, we know it's not that life-threatening. Eventually, they're gonna need a mitral valve replacement, right? Pneumonia, it can be life-threatening if you're somebody old, so you can't miss it either, right? And again, you're, you're, you have to use your tricks. You have to use your tools. Better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it, right? So no, I don't go, hey, can you say E every time I space on your, your, your thorax, right? Like E, E, or 99, 99, no, no, it's not gonna happen. But what if you do it? What if you do document on that? The patient does have consolidation on the left side based on fecophony. That sounds amazing. That sounds really good. No, no one really is thinking that you probably did it, but you, you could say that you did that, right? And, and, it, and it's possibly there. Like, I do it when I know there is pneumonia. I don't do it to look for pneumonia, but I do it when there is pneumonia. Um, reflux, esophagitis, and then de depending on what kind of esophagitis, right, then you start getting the other things. Do you have asthma, right? Do you, and then you check gastronoma levels to make sure it's nasology endocin. So there's so many things that you just have to know because if you don't know it, you're going to miss it, okay? Um, esophageal spasm, which is very common to cause chest pain as well. Costochondritis, this is the biggest cop-out of any diagnosis ever. This, I don't try not to use costochondritis. If you're gonna discharge somebody with costochondritis, just put atypical chest pain instead, where I'm able to press on your, your, your chest wall and reproduce the pain. The problem with that is, you can't just say, oh, I'm able to reproduce the pain, so this is costochondritis. So are 50% of other MIs. 50% of MIs are reproducible chest pain. So what did you really rule out there, right? Now if you say, hey, it hurts when they move it, it hurts when I press it, they just did push-ups an hour ago, like, yeah, maybe that's something that we gotta think about. But other than that, there's only so much that you can give somebody for costochondritis, okay? Um, what are the typical signs of somebody that's actually having an ischemic event? So these patients won't know where the pain specifically is. They're not gonna be like, oh, it's right here. One finger, they can point at it. That's not an MI. An MI is gonna be like, somewhere here, I feel like an elephant is sitting on my chest. Uh, the pain doesn't come and go. It's pretty constant. It lasts more than 30 minutes. It's making me nauseous. I feel like I'm about to die. That's the fear of doom. I'm getting sweaty. I'm, I'm, you know, pain in the left arm, but also pain in the right arm, pain that goes up to the jaw. And then, like I said, the people you don't trust are diabetics, old people, and women. So the worst people in these cases are old diabetic women. You don't trust them, no matter what they tell you, okay? Um, any tightening, squeezing, Levine sign, if you guys don't know, that's when you're clenching the fist and you're holding the left side of the heart. That's something that you should know about as well, okay? Um, other atypical presentations. So when it's somebody that's old and they tell you they've had a syncopal episode, am I until proven otherwise, okay? And if you're diabetic, you have some sort of neuropathy, you may not feel chest pain at all. You might just feel nauseous. And if you're a woman, you can never tell us what's wrong. We have to figure it out, right? You don't know what it is. I, just, I don't feel myself. What is that? What is that? <laughs> Are you on your period again? Don't even say that. Like, no, no. This, I just don't feel right. I don't even know what that is. Let's just turn around and do a troponin. Do a troponin. I don't know. I do it for every woman, no matter what age they are, because just you can't trust them when they're saying something. They want you to figure it out. Sorry, I'm getting like flashbacks. Sorry. <laughs> so you just, I just, you just have to know. The fact that you're asking, you don't know, forget it. Fine, die. I don't know what you, what you even tell you, right? And then you have to know when to do that D-dimer, right? The D-dimer, we literally call it the D-dimer game because it's a gamble every single time. Because 
a D-dimer, again, I've explained this before, it's a very, very sensitive exam, okay? Now, I know you've been taught sensitivity and specificity, like if 99% have this and the other 1% have it, and then sensitivity means 99% will have it. What, what? Look, specificity and sensitivity works like this. It's sensitive enough to catch anything. Like, it, if there's a clot, it will be elevated, okay? But it's not specific enough to tell you where the clot is. It's not specific enough to that diagnosis, meaning a D-dimer can be positive if you're pregnant, which there's overvolume and inflammation anyway, right? A D-dimer could be positive from the IV you just started, which, again, means nothing to me because what clot am I worried about? The clot in the lungs or the clot in the legs, right? That's what sensitivity and specificity. That's why things like... A, a, a non-specific examination like SED rate. That'll be elevated anytime there's inflammation. CRP, elevated anytime. Same thing with, with a CBC. A white count, it could be anything. But it will be something if something is there. That's what it means. I don't, I don't know if that explains it to you a little bit or not. But like, you just have to understand the difference of what am I looking for. But there's other examinations like, like a troponin enzyme. It's pretty sensitive to a heart attack. It's not specific just to a heart attack, but it's pretty sensitive to it. So you have to start learning how to use these lab values and these tools that are made available to you, okay? So these are symptoms. Again, any symptom that's less than two minutes or comes and goes and has been going on for the past few weeks, probably not cardiac related. You're not gonna catch a heart attack usually two weeks later. It'll catch them, okay? So that doesn't mean you stand by the bedside and say, you know what, it's been going on for two weeks, you're talking crap, you can go now. People do this, people do this. It's not a thing, you shouldn't do that, all right? Say, hey, I know you're worried about this. Because believe it or not, half of the treatment that you give to a patient is when you talk to them and say, hey, I'm gonna show you that this is probably not anything. And then you're gonna feel better. Because at that moment, it's a heart attack. And try telling that to a PA student that's going through it, and now is having chest pain. And then you're telling them in the hospital it's nothing. What do you mean? You didn't do a troponin enzyme? You didn't do an EKG? What do you lose in doing the cardiac workup? Nothing. Nothing. You don't lose the time. You get paid per hour. That's why I tell patients all the time, like, oh my God, thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you so much for, like, taking the time to take care of me. And in my head, I'm like, no matter to me. I get paid either way. Whether I spend five minutes or 50 minutes or five hours, I got paid either way. You always, always remember that. Do not take what you have for granted. You're, you're just a shrimp, honestly. And, and this, even the doctors, they're tiger shrimps, but they're still shrimps. Because there's a CEO who has zero experience in medicine that runs your money. Right? So just make your money. Take care of the patients. Do what you came to PA school for, remember? I want to take care of people. Okay? Do it. That's important. That's important to everybody. Right? So just do it. You don't, have, you don't lose anything. And the patient gets better with a negative result. Not because they are negative, but because you tell them there's nothing going on. Look, I did cardiac enzymes. That would tell me if you've had a heart attack up to two weeks ago. How did I tell them that? Well, because the troponin stays elevated in your body up to two weeks, right? Or, and sell it in another way. I don't know what happened six hours ago, so I'm going to do another troponin enzyme 
to make sure everything is okay. This is like why you have to, why you have to understand like they're coming to you for the care. When it comes to chest pain, this is one of the most scary symptoms any patient can have because their thinking is only one differential, right? Your knowledge has 20 differentials. Imagine coming to the ER like, oh, I have chest pain and, and then ah, I know it's a heart attack. Okay, no worries, we're gonna make sure it's not, but we're also gonna make sure it's nothing else, right? They weren't even, they weren't even thinking about that. You got them a little worried now. They weren't even thinking about it could be anything else, right? So you work it up. We're gonna make sure there's no pulmonary embolism. We're gonna make sure there's no pneumonia. I'm gonna make sure there's no costochondritis. <coughs> there's no heart attack. There's no pleural fusion. There's no pericarditis. You just bust it out, bust it out. And we're gonna do everything for this. We're gonna do everything we can for you. You have to sell that because that's the part of medicine that they don't teach you in the book. And when you get there in real life, you're like, they didn't really teach me how to do that. Right? And that's important, even as a student, okay? I know I, I, you know I hate these things that say it's the number one killer, it's the number one killer, everything's the number one killer, okay? So coronary artery disease is though, believe it or not, right? Just look at our diets. I mean, I start my morning off with like a strawberry refresher as okay that sounds, as much as possible, okay? But, you know, we have to start understanding that this is the lifestyle that we, that we live here, right? So... <clears throat> And I, and I would argue that Americans have probably the most highest rate of coronary syndrome and coronary artery disease. We make a hell of a lot of money from this. Okay. So um, the physical examination is usually not specific. Like it doesn't really tell you much. What can you see, right? How do you, how do you what do you find on somebody that has chest pain, right? It's going to be from your history taking. It's going to be from anything that you do for the patient in the labs, in the EKG. And then even when you do an EKG, what if it's a non-STEMI? What if it's unstable angina, right? That's up to you to make that differential, especially when it comes to acute coronary syndrome. Acute coronary syndrome is divided into three different things, right? So STEMI, and STEMI, and angina, or unstable angina, right? So when you break those things down, the thing that really differentiates them is the troponin enzyme and EKG, right? So in a STEMI patient, your troponin enzyme will be remarkably, un, un, unremarkably like elevated, like crazy markedly elevated, and the trip, and the ST elevations on the EKG. And then on the EKG, you have to know where the MI is, right? Is this septal, is this anterior septal, is this lateral, is this inferior? And based off that, what artery am I looking for so that when I give it to the cardiac cath, they know what artery we should be looking at. You gotta get to that step. You can't play around, you can't play around with this. Because when you come here, with an EKG to me, and you're like, I think I see ST elevations. Well, no crap, I can tell my son how to do that. Tell me though, not only where do you see the ST elevations, what part of the heart is it, what artery is being affected? Get to that level. We're not, we're not, we're not in, the, in the little leagues anymore, right? You, you gotta play with the big dogs because that's what's gonna differentiate you from the student of, in Barry and FI, well not FIU, because I teach them too, but like, you know, like, Eventually, you gotta get to a point where you're competing with other people, and you'll see, you'll see, I'm guaranteeing it to you right now, when you go in August to your rotations, if you're not the best student there, I'm not gonna give your money back, but I, if you're not, the, <laughs> no, it's not. But you'll see all the nonsense that you thought comes with this program, you're gonna see how far in advance you are than a medical student. 
than a lot of those PA students that are out there. You'll see it. You'll see it in two weeks in Indiana. You'll see it. People will ask you, hey, how did you, uh, what do you guys study? What do you guys do? Right? Take that with pride. Trust me. Trust me, because we take it to the next level, because we know what's out there, uh, especially those that practice clinically, like, like Professor Cruz, Conception, Pitagoo, and myself. Like, we know where you should be at, not where a student should be at. I told you, I don't teach students. I don't do that. I teach colleagues, because two years from now, I'm going to be calling you for a consult, and that's a proud moment every single time. Every single time. Mostly, it's just going to end up being like, all the people that I call are always end up like ortho. But I want to call a cardiology PA that I taught in 2022, right? Or 2023, whatever we're at, right? That's, that's where you want to be at, okay? Um, the pathology of an MI, we're not going to get too crazy into this. Uh, I think Professor Deano still teaches pathology in the summer too. That's how far, no other school does pathology like three semesters, I think. It's always like two. So... You got, you're getting it for a reason. Trust me. Trust me. You're getting it for a reason. Um, this basically just shows um, what happens at different levels of an ejection fraction. Remember, ejection fraction is the amount of blood that's left in the left ventricle after the heart squeezes, after systole. All right? So this is the resting ejection fraction. Anything with 25% or less, I would say 30% or less, it's CHF. There's congestion going on. Okay? Anybody with 40%, that you have to start thinking about shock. Right? The cardiogenic shock. We started talking about that in the beginning a little bit, right? During my dictation, okay? So right ventricular infarct leads to hypotension. That's important. That's really important because when we're thinking about what medications to give somebody with chest pain and they have an MI, that's going to be very important. This is definitely an exam question, okay? If I tell you that the patient has ST elevation <coughs> and 2, 3, and AVF, where am I? Inferior. What artery am I? Right coronary. artery. What side of the heart am I then? The right. Guess what medication I cannot give. If it's causing hypotension, what medication do you commonly give to MIs that you cannot give to a right-sided heart? Nitro. Because if you give nitro to that patient, they're going to have refractory hypotension. No matter what pressure you give to this patient, they're just going to stay down. You have to know that. And that's the level... That's, I'm telling you, without telling you what's on the boards, I'm telling you it's on the boards. They get to a level where they'll tell you what the diagnosis is. They'll tell you, hey, patient comes in with sudden onset of chest pain. He's 49 years old. He's a smoker. He's diabetic. He's hypertension. So they give you the risk factors. You do an EKG, and it shows ST elevations and needs. Forget it. They'll give you the EKG. This is the EKG of the patient. And you see ST elevations in the 2, 3, AVF. Based off of this EKG, which of the following medications is contraindicated for the patient? Do you see what they did? They skipped the whole part that this patient has an MI. They skipped the whole part telling you this is inferior, a whole part that this is the right coronary artery and that the right side of the heart is being infarcted. It's up to you to know the three steps before that, to know that the, the nitroglycerin is contraindicated. That's the boards. That's the boards. I'm telling you right now. Yeah. Then you don't give another one. No, no, no. Yeah, but like, is there anything you do intervention? No. So if it's just one, you're gonna be okay. And and this does come up also. And you ask him what medication you take. Oh, I thought it was angina, so I took a nitroglycerin. Oh, okay. That's why we can't bring your hypo, uh, hypo, uh, hypotension up. 
and they'll be okay. They'll be fine. You still put them on a presser. You still work them up. You still give them, you know, fluids as you can. Put them in Trent Dellenberg, whatever other methods you can to get their, their uh, blood pressure back up. But you know now to not give that to them, right? But you put pressers for a little bit, nothing crazy. You don't need a center line or anything like that, but yeah, that's a good question. So you, you have to understand that that's the boards. By the way, um, I, I don't make any money off of anybody except for Help Campus and PXL, but if I had to recommend you something to start studying for the boards now, definitely use Rosh. Rosh in the sense that they give you good questions. They give you good content. But if you want to get ready for the boards, you world. They don't pay me. They should. They don't. Okay? That, I can tell you, anybody that's taken the board so far will tell you, it's harder than the pants, but it sets you up for the pants. If I want to lift 100 pounds tomorrow, I'm not going to lift, I'm not going to lift 95 pounds or 100 pounds. I'm going to lift 110 so that that 100 is easy for me. Right? That's U-World. U-World is 120% of what the actual boards is. So it's important. Now, your next question is, when should I buy? When should I start? December. Okay? Because that's when it goes on sale. And it's 33% off, and that'll give you eight months to study it. Okay? Just tell you right now, it's usually December. I watch these things because I have to purchase it. I'm telling you around December. 33% off. I hope it's going to happen again this year. Okay? Or, or Cyber Monday. I don't know. Buy it in the winter, okay? Rosh? No, sweetheart. You world. You world. We moved on from Rosh. We moved on. To, I know they gave it to you. That's why I'm telling you the one you got to purchase. Mike, can you handle that? Can you handle that, Mike? I'll tell you later. I'll tell you later. Do you have a discount code? No, I said I don't get paid by them. I'm going to figure it out. I get it. I got to do that. It's too expensive. Actually, we can make it work. I'll try to tell them that this is what works. You get Help Campus also, though, um, which I think our, our questions, believe it or not, and I'll admit it, our platform is next to Nova, for sure. We, I'm not going to solve this right now. I'm going to do it after. Um, <laughs> so we have to understand um, complications of an MI, all right? Arrhythmias, very frequent, okay? Especially if the MI is on the left ventricle. Very, very important, okay? PVCs, right? Which technically counts as an arrhythmia, right? Anterior injury leads to tachyarrhythmias. I, saw, I told you the story. Inferior can lead to first-degree blocks, both it's one blocks, and we know what those look like already. All right. Anterior inferior blocks lead to injury of higher-degree blocks, right? So second-degree type two, third-degree, and we know we need to pace those. Need to pace both of them. Okay. Second-degree type two, you need to put the pacer pads on. Third-degree, you got to pace them. We got to get them out of there. They're too bradycardic at that moment for them to survive that. Okay. Um, and then usually 15 to 20% of these patients are eventually going to uh, <coughs> develop some degree of CHF because they're not able to contract the way that they're supposed to or they're not able to fill the way that they're supposed to because remember, there's systolic heart failure and then there's diastolic heart failure, right? There's two different types. There's a problem with the contraction and then there's a problem with the filling. Those are both important uh, things to remember. So what do you do when somebody in the ER comes with chest pain? Okay, again, you're going to ask them all the different signs and symptoms that they have, right? What are you here for? What happened? How long has the pain been going on for? Where's the pain? What makes it better? What makes it worse? Did you travel anywhere? Do you take any birth control pills? Did you have any long periods of standing or sitting? All these are important because remember, when we're not moving, the blood is stagnant. But the blood is going to keep getting pumped by the arteries. The arteries are dictated 
by the heart, right? And the valves of the vein only open when there's a contraction of the muscle. So if there's no contraction in the muscle, everything starts to get backed up. If it gets backed up, blood that is stagnant clots, right? So then the next step that you take and then you open and close the valve, open and close the valve, it'll go to the femoral vein. It'll go up that whole system in the inferior vena cava and go into the lungs, right? So you have to understand that, that these are the concepts that can develop. Very simple, believe it or not. These are simple concepts that you have to know. You, you, that's the simple stuff. The other stuff that I tell you, as far as knowing what arteries involved and what can happen, that's a little complex. But this is simple stuff. You gotta know how the anatomy works. We have to know what could be affected because at the end of the day, that's the basis and the foundation of everything that we do, right? So what do you do? You make sure it's not an infection. You make sure it's not pneumonia. CBC, right? You make sure the arrhythmia is not anemia, right? So you need the hemoglobin, hematocrit, right? And if they tell you that, yeah, I had an upper respiratory illness two weeks ago, you make sure that the lymphocytes are not elevated, the, the neutrophils, there's no left shift on the CBC, right? So that I know that it could not be pericarditis, right? That's all important. You can do an ESR, but I, I don't, I, I don't. You, my, my questioning has to be so optimal that I don't need blood work to do what I'm looking for, okay? Coags, I'm a big proponent of not ordering coags on everybody. Because it doesn't, a lot of times you don't need it. But if my patient is having active chest pain, and I truly believe that this person probably is going to get admitted, then I'll order coax. Why? Because when you get admitted, I'm either going to be giving you heparin for the heart attack or just for the mere sake of prophylaxis of the DVT. So that's where the PTPTT does come into play. Other than that, you don't need a PTPTT for surgery. Because if you need emergent surgery, is an elevated PTT going to stop me? No. You need surgery. Right? Same thing with the lumbar tap. I, I had a student tell me this, and we have students, right, I think he's from Philadelphia right now, and he, I, he asked me, well, I need a PTT before I do the lumbar tap. I was like, all right, what if it's elevated? Are you not gonna do a lumbar tap for this patient that has meningitis? No, no, still needs it. You're right, so you just wasted them 140 bucks. Learn to play with that, right? I mean, if it's super elevated, and they tell you, the people with an elevated PTT are gonna know it. You're not gonna find this. You're not gonna find hemophilia A and hemophilia B for these people. Like, they'll tell you, hey, I have a bleeding disorder. Okay, cool, maybe I should do a PTPTT so that I know I need to give them TDADP before I do that. I'm being, saying a bunch of acronyms right now, relax. We're gonna go over it, okay? So you have to understand, like, what I need to do to prep the patient, because at the end of the day, they still need the lumbar tap or whatever it is that we're trying to do. Obviously, we need troponin enzymes. Okay, so then the other thing, we used to do back in the day, and I mean back in the day, like 16 years ago even, we would order four cardiac enzymes, all four different types. We'd order the troponin enzyme, which we knew was the most sensitive one and the one that we need. We would order a CKMB, which happens to be in the bloodstream for only up to 48 hours, and that's important because there's a question on that as well. We would order a myoglobin, which eh, doesn't really help that much, but it can be elevated during an event. And then a CK, uh, creatinine kinase, kinase, right? Any wasting of the heart muscle will elevate the creatinine kinase, right? To the point that we got like, hey, do we really need all of these cardiac enzymes? So we stuck to doing troponin enzyme, okay? Because the troponin enzyme will get elevated in the body in at least two to six hours, easily, okay? And it'll peak anywhere from four to seven days. It'll peak anywhere from four to seven days and then leave the body in 10 to 14 days. Those are important numbers to remember. Why? Because let's say you do admit somebody and we tell you that even the CKMB will be elevated in somebody's body anywhere from two to four hours. It'll start 
peaking at around 10 or 12 hours and then leave the body in 48 hours. Why is that important for me? Let's say we admit somebody and they've had a chest pain event and they've had an acute event and they go to the cardiac cath and we put the stent in them, this and that. But then they have a, another episode of a chest pain, not within a week because then you're starting to think Dressler syndrome, right? Let's say they had that heart attack, another one, four hours later, okay, because we missed a spot or something. If you do a troponin enzyme, that enzyme is still left over from the first event. How do you differentiate that troponin enzyme to be something else? You do a CKMB. Because the CKMB from the first heart attack has already left the system. So now if it's elevated, okay, this might be something. And we can run it again. And if you see it elevating again, because by this time, from the first event, it should be going down. And if it goes high, you just got a second MI. All right? That's important. You have to know that play. You have to understand that that's what's happening. That's the level, again, you need to be at. You need to turn it up. It, you're too late into the game now. We're going into rotation. You've got to be ready. Same thing with an EKG, right? In the EKG, you have to understand, where is the heart attack? Is this pericarditis? And if you're there looking for pulmonary embolism, it's not. An S is lead one, uh, uh, a Q wave in lead three, an inverted wave, uh, T wave in lead three. That's not a thing. It's not. What is the most common finding in an EKG for pulmonary embolism? Sinus tachycardia. That's the level you need to be at. The S1, Q3, T3, it's baby stuff. That's not a thing. It only happens in about 5 to 7% of the population with pulmonary embolism. It's not a thing. So don't get stuck on that. A chest x-ray? Hell yeah, I need a chest x-ray. Sorry, heck yeah, I need a chest x-ray. <laughs> right? Because can I find a pulmonary embolism on the chest x-ray? Sure. If you're a board-certified radiologist for 10 years, you can find Hamptons um, What is it? Hamptons hump? Hamptons hump. Westmark sign. And what does that look like? What does that look like? You guys talk about it. What does that look like? Yeah, you could, if I showed you two x-rays, would you be able to pick it up? No, right? We know the names. We know what it's supposed to look like. Just do a CT angiogram, right? Let's not play with it. And then what else am I looking for? I can rule out an aortic dissection because what do I see on a chest x-ray? A wide metastinum. Very good class. Good. good job. Okay. I can rule out pneumonia by finding infiltrates. I can find a pleural fusion by finding a flan or or the cosmetic angles are blunted, right? These are, that's, that's the level you gotta get at, especially when it comes to ER. This is why, this is exactly why I don't take students the first four rotations. Because I need you to go out there, get your butt kicked by everybody else. I don't wanna be the first one to do it. I wanna be the one to bring you back up after you, you've gotten your butt kicked by everybody else. I wanna make sure when we sit down where we, you, there's one day, literally, you sit down for two hours with our radiology tech and just look at how they do an x-ray. Look at how they do a CT scan. Look at what the images, because our, our guys are optimal. Like, these guys are insanely good at not just doing it, but reading it. Imagine a tech being able to read it. Now, he doesn't get paid the money to read these things, but they know what they're looking for. They know what to look out for. They learn that. They just don't get paid to call it but they know what to look for. That's important. So you gotta be ready for those kind of things. Now again, EKGs, a lot of times you don't even get it. So let's go back to acute coronary syndrome. The ST elevation, troponin enzyme elevated, that's STEMI, okay? How about troponin enzymes elevated but the, there's no change in the EKG? That's an NSTEMI, right? How about chest pain with no troponin enzyme elevation, with no uh, um, ST elevations? 
have could be angina, right? That I took a nitroglycerin, it doesn't take get any better. Unstable angina. And know the three different anginas. Stable angina means it's stable. Like when I go and I go up the stairs and it hurts me, but then I relax and then it goes away or I pop a nitroglycerin and it feels better. That's stable. You're able to control it, right? Unstable is I go up the stairs, I get a lot of pain, and I took a nitroglycerin, it doesn't get any better. Or I have to take more nitroglycerin than I did the last time for it to get better. Any change in the dose of nitroglycerin also classifies this as an as unstable engine as well. What about the Prince Metal Engine, right? That's the lady sitting in the hospital, and when I'm having chest pain, I'm having chest pain, and you do an EKG at that time, and it shows the ST elevations, and then she's like, okay, I feel better, no, no chest pain, you do another EKG, and the ST elevations go away. That's Prince Metal Angina. So only when the vasoconstriction is happening in the coronary arteries that you see that the ST elevations are happening on the EKG. That's Prince Metal Angina. And they love asking questions about that, because you only study stable and unstable angina. You didn't study Prince Metal, that's what they think. They think you're not ready. By the way, your test is being made at this moment. For the pants, they're making it for you right now. They're writing it for you right now. Just so you know, the people that are taking the exam this year, in August and all that, their exam is made. I know it sounds scary, and your exam is being made right now. They're probably on question number 30. <laughs> I made that up, but like, you know, just have that mindset. But they're preparing for you. How much have you prepared for them? You have it. And done it. You're here taking emergency medicine, right? Think about that. What time are we at? Uh, 11. We're at 41. All right, good. We're going to stop at 50. So, these are the locations of the MIs. I've showed you this slide at least two, three times already because it's going to be there. I will tell you right now, there's not going to be an ex uh, there's not going to be a question on 23ABF. There might be a question on what artery is and what that drug that's contraindicated, that might be on there. But other than that, we're going away from 2,3-ABF. Everybody knows it. It's too easy to remember. And I think I showed you the mnemonic already, right, Sally? If it's septal, it's V1, V2 elevation. If it's anterior, it's V3, V4. Lateral is V5, V6. And then I is inferior, 2,3-ABF, right? So let's go over that. If you could just put this into... Uh, Presentation mode. You're typing a whole lot, dude. What's going on? You're right. <laughs> super into this lecture. <laughs> All right, ready to go? We've already done this. Who taught your EKGs? Professor Williams. Yeah. Keith. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I thought you were tired. You know. That never goes away. No. <laughs> so where are we at here? Right. Anterior septal. Why? Because you see it in the septal leads, right? V1, V2 is septal, S, and then anterior is V3, V4. Not too much happening in V5, V6. So anterior septal, MI. Okay? What about here? This is a little bit difficult, believe it or not. Because it's kind of not specific in lead two. But the rule is that you have to have it in two consecutive leads. So you definitely see it in 2, 3, and you, see, you don't see it that much in 2, but you see it in lead 3, and you see it in lead ABF, right? I want you to actually see something else. Look at it in this one right here, anterior septal lead. There are reciprocal changes on this. What does that mean? Look at the inferior. Exactly. Exactly. They're reacting to what's happening in the septal anterior region, okay? So what do you do? 
now you got this patient and you got the MI presented in front of you. Look at the patient. Now we treat the patient, not the just the MI. What kind of MI is it? What's happening with the patient? Very, very important, okay? So obviously we know that whole pneumonic Mona, right? There's also Mona B cash pad, right? With the beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and you give heparin and you know all these other things, Plavix, whatever you want to give. The first thing that I'll tell you is definitely give the patient aspirin. And if they're allergic to aspirin, hint, hint, you give Plavix, okay? I don't like asking about dosages, and I'm not gonna ask you about dosages in this, but the dose of Plavix changes when it's a loading dose. The normal dose of Plavix is 75 milligrams orally. When you're having an acute MI, then it's 300 milligrams, okay? And people are like, well, why would you do that when you're about to go into a cardiac cath? Isn't the patient gonna bleed more? Yeah, but we wanna make sure that we have a good liquid environment while we're putting in a stent. Because then when we put in a stent, if everything's clotted up, it's hard to get in and deploy that stent. If you haven't seen how to put in a stent, that's also something like a three-minute video that you can watch on YouTube. All right? That's about 15 scrolls through Instagram. Instead of that, do three minutes on YouTube, and you'll be fine. Okay? And you'll see how we get there. In fact, there's the femoral approach, and there's also the radial approach. You could do a cardiac catheterization on the radial artery, right? But you don't want to go here if you know you're probably going to put in a stent. You want to go into femoral. The, the, by the way, the distance is the same, honestly. It's the same thing. But it's how you deploy the stent because that's going to be femoral for sure. And you can go on the left side, you can go on the right side. The bifurcation is still the same. You're still going to meet at the same highway. So, again, thrombolytics, aspirin, okay? Uh, or not thrombolytics, antiplatelets. Remember, those are two different things. Aspirin is an antiplatelet. Plavix is an antiplatelet aggregation, meaning... Not that I'm stopping you from making platelets, but I'm stopping your platelets from sticking together. That's important that you understand that as well, okay? So what do we have to do? There's a cardiac demand, there's oxygen demand for the heart muscle, and if it misses that oxygen demand, then it's gonna die, it's gonna necrose, it's gonna become ischemic. And that's when problems start to happen, so it's really, really important, okay? Um, you see that aspirin, and actually beta blockers is another one, they're the ones that reduce the mortality rate of a patient. So be on top of that, whenever you can give that medication, okay? The only time you probably won't give a beta blocker to a patient is when there's a cocaine-induced MI, and we're gonna talk about that as well. So Mona is what you need, to, you need to know. This doesn't have to be in that specific order. If they're not having pain, you don't have to give morphine. You could give oxygen. Remember, we're missing the oxygen demand, so give oxygen to the patient. How much? Two liters, four liters a minute, 100% oxygen, you'll be good, you're fine. Definitely the aspirin, and then think about giving heparin. Think about giving heparin to the patient, right? Um, I do, this is a few times that I do give heparin to a patient. Other than that, DVTs, I just give Lovenox because it's so much easier to, like, dose one mg per kick. Easy peasy. The only thing is, what lab values do I have to have before I give Lovenox? Creatinine clearance, very good class. You guys are on top of this. Good job. The, the, did you say it? Because you were like, yeah. All right, good. So, um, be on top of that. And then nitrates, now we gotta say, okay, so now we know, you know, what patients that we give nitroglycerin to, patients that are having an MI, patients that are in stable angina or unstable angina, right? You can give this in a spray, you can give this in a little tablet, you can give it through IV. What's another patient you don't wanna give nitroglycerin to? What is it? Viagra, sedenafil, right? And how do we get that information? You ask. Did you take any other medications last night? 
because they're not going to be a lot of times scared of telling you. Taking like uh, Cialis and Viagra is, is like whatever now, right? But they might not be taking it for that. They actually might be taking Cialis just because they have BPH, which has been approved. Five milligrams a daily helps with BPH. And they'll tell you, yeah, use it for BPH. Okay, whatever, do you, bro. I, I'm not here to judge. I'm here to treat. So you have to understand that, that you know, there's other medications that do that. And then that'll keep them plummeted if you give them nitroglycerin again, right? Other patients that we just found out, right-sided MIs. You don't want to give them nitroglycerin either. Okay, very important. So heparin. Um, again, the big thing here is that it is weight-based. Um, so people always wonder, like, well, how do you check the patient's weight if they're coming in dead? Simple. Our beds have a weight on it. We measure your weight on the bed. And then we calculate the kilograms or whatever it is, and we go from there. Okay? And then, of course, we're going to see, it, usually the initial bolus is like 5,000 units or whatever it is. But what if we go overboard on this and they end up with something? What's a complication that can happen with heparin? Heparin induced thrombocytopenia. Okay? How do you reverse that? Protamine sulfate. Right? And then, so then, what's the dose on that? 100 what? Oh, yeah. See? You're, you're at that level. I'm trying to get you here. What is it? 100 what? One milligram for every 100 units that you gave this patient. Right? I could have just said that and you believe me now, right? Is that what it is? You can. You, you should give both. You should definitely give both. And I'll tell you this from the ICU. We do, we do both, for sure. And then you have to go look into the antibodies and stuff like that, but that's not in the ER, so don't have to use that. So, but know the contraindications for these patients. If they're already bleeding, I'm going to tell you, again, a lot of times, I don't teach you just based off of the things that I've done well on. I'll tell you things that I've messed up on. And when I was just a PA for about four or five months, right, we had a patient that he came in uh, for, like, AFib, new onset AFib. And we had no other treatment. At that time, Pradaxa was brand new. There was nothing else going on with the patient. And so, simple, simple case for a good 23-year-old PA practicing cardiology medicine, right? I walk in, everything looks good. Oh, okay, cool. Didn't even bother to ask, what brought you in? All I'm like, oh, AFib. Easy peasy, bro. No worries. Yeah, looks like AFib on the EKG. The rate is controlled. Cardism as needed. You guys are good. Here's uh, five milligrams of warfarin. Get started tonight. And I leave. And then I found out the reason this patient was admitted to the hospital was an upper GI bleed. And then so I get a call. They're like, yo, you started this guy on warfarin, and they have an upper GI bleed? I'm like, no, he doesn't have an upper GI bleed. He has AFib. No, he's here for uh, upper GI bleed. I'm like, oh, shit. Now, you're thinking, wait a minute. The nurse gave it? Yes, yeah, she did. That's an order. She has to follow orders because she was also a new nurse. Right? She just sees order. Cool. What's the patient here for? Ah, they fit. And that's what you call, you know, the Swiss cheese model, right? It falls in multiple cracks. Now, again, the patient was fine. Everything was okay. This guy was really old back then, so I'm sure he's not alive anymore. Like, still, I don't, I know the GI bleed didn't kill him. All right? Probably fit, so you're welcome. But at the end of the day, you have to look at the whole picture. I walked in like, AFib, yeah, we got it, we're good, let's go. And that's what inexperience will get to you. You're excited. You're intimidated and you're excited, and the idea, and even in life, is to find the balance. Find the middle. Find the middle of insanity and calm. Find the middle. Find the middle of when, when to party and when to sleep. Right? 
don't sleep at parties. That's not the middle, okay? You have to find the middle. So thrombolytics, what if you are in a rural um, emergency room and you cannot get to the cath lab? That's a question that comes up as well. So we found out that when you use TPA, and, and you know in strokes it's up to four and a half hours, but here it's up to 12 hours. If you've had chest pain that started within 12 hours ago, you can give TPA to that patient. Keeping in mind still the contraindications for TPA. You still need to know that. But this is when you cannot get to the cath lab. Then you can give a, a clot buster because a lot of times that's what's be causing the, the heart attack, right? You have a STEMI, you can't get to the cath lab in the next 90 minutes, which is the, the, the door to balloon time we want. And you can give them a thr thrombolytic like TPA and then transfer them. And then guess what you're gonna do at the hospital? You're still going to do a cardiac cath on them. <coughs> And you're like, well, what, how, how can I do a cardiac cath on somebody that just got TPA? doesn't matter. TPA is not going to kill them. You still need to go in there and deploy your stent, and it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. So we'll take a break, and we'll come back at 11.05. I plan on, on finishing today at 11.50, by the way. Cool. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, so again, we're giving TPA, even though we know the indication for TPA, we have to more importantly know the contraindications, right? So um, we know now that with a stroke patient, and if we are convinced that it's an embolic stroke, we find out by a CT scan, we can give TPA up to four and a half hours. With a patient that's having a heart attack and they've had chest pain, it's up to 12 hours, okay? That's the thing that changes. But the contraindications stay the same, okay? So these are the indications for somebody that you're gonna give thrombolytics to having a chest pain and with no access to a cardiac cath lab, excuse me, within the 90 minutes, okay? Or any time that's gonna be delayed by more than 60 minutes. Maybe it's not just a transfer issue, maybe is that three other people had a heart attack at the same time and you only have two cath labs. So that's really important if you can't transfer them out to anywhere else, okay? The contraindications stay the same though. The contraindication is the same thing as if you've ever had a hemorrhagic stroke, you know, ever, we're not gonna give you this medication, you don't qualify. So you were like, okay, well what do you do for this patient that does not qualify for TPA, that we cannot get to the cath lab? And to that, I say, pray, okay? Give them the, give them the, the Plavix, give them heparin, give them whatever you can to break up the clot, work them up, be ready to run a code as soon as you can because the, the next step is to definitely get this patient to uh, a facility that has the capabilities of cardiac catheterization. And you'd be working on this at the same time, believe it or not, but obviously we have charged nurses, we have resource nurses, task nurses, um, techs, everybody that kind of helps you. This is why you appreciate everybody and anybody in the hospital from the person that registers a patient to the person that cleans the sheet at the end. Please don't be one of those PAs that walks around the, the hallways like your, your big talk, you ain't nothing, okay? You're nothing, and I, and I say this, I, I pause for this also because you need to realize no system works if that person that cleans the floors doesn't show up that day, your hospital doesn't look the same, okay? If that person in the, in the cafeteria doesn't show up that day, 
I might take my facility. We don't even have a cafeteria, so you can only imagine the, the ladies that I miss and the guys that I miss. Okay, um, so you you have to appreciate everybody and anybody. If the person doesn't register the patient at that time, you're going to be in a lot of trouble as well because the patient won't have any sort of information entered into the system. You can't do it all. Okay, even though most places will try to make you do it all. So appreciate every single person. That's why when we're in this campus, we don't downplay the ultrasound tech the dental hygienist people, or the nurses. Uh, no matter how hot they think they are down there, we're still, we know what we do. We know what our capabilities are. So don't undermine anybody based on what position they are, because you wouldn't want a doctor to undermine you, right? You're no less, no more than anybody. Always remember that, okay? Um, so then that's just angioplasty. So other treatments, you can use glycoprotein or GP2 or 3A inhibitors. You can use morphine, which reduces the preload of a patient as well. Um, calcium channel blockers are very good in vasodilation. Helps really a lot, obviously, with hypertension. You can reduce the rate as well. But it hasn't really been proven to reduce the mortality of somebody that's having an MI as well. So again, um, beta blockers, I told you, it's the only other medication other than aspirin that is proven to reduce the mortality on somebody as well, especially if with, given within eight hours. This is probably the medication of choice when you're thinking about what to give a patient for hypertension. We love using lobetalol as well. That's a big one. Metropolol is another good one, especially metropolol. Uh, sesame is the one that you want to go with. Uh, Plavix, I told you, the loading dose is usually 300 milligrams to even 600 milligrams as a loading dose. Normal dose is about 75 milligrams on those patients as well. You want to reduce the heart rate. Um, you don't want them, obviously, in a fast heart rate. The faster the heart is going, the more demand there is on the heart, and it's not receiving that demand, so they can start failing really quick as well. You want to maintain a blood pressure a little bit more than 100 uh, millimeters of mercury, but also less than 130. You don't want to get them too excited as well. Uh, so you got to be careful with certain medications also. Cocaine-induced MIs, you will not, oh wow, you really love cocaine. All right, cool. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who it was, but somebody just did this. No, wow, wow. The judgments of this guy, all right. All right, I'm not going to instigate that, but anyway. Somebody thinks you do cocaine, by the way. So... Cocaine-induced MI. Here, down here, especially if you're going to practice uh, medicine down here, you got to ask that patient, especially if this is somebody young. It has to be in the back of your mind. Now, you can't just be biased about it like saying, Raphael does cocaine. That doesn't work, right? You, if you suspect it, you have to get to a point where you're like, okay, this patient has no other risk factors. They don't have high blood pressure, no high cholesterol, nothing else. And they're 29 years old, and they look like they have... Marks now. This is when you have to become judgmental. Like, okay, this is probably somebody that does cocaine. Okay, all right. Just that's something you have to get to, and you can, and you will do a urine drug tox on patients that you suspect because now it is going to make a difference. But if somebody tells you, yeah, I smoke marijuana here and there, why would you do a drug tox on them? They told you the medication or the drug that they do. Don't waste your time. Don't don't get like. Jeez, me on that. Like, you're good. Oh, I wonder what else they do. No one cares. If it doesn't change the management of this patient, then it doesn't matter. But in here, it does change the management because this literally means I cannot give you a beta blocker, which is shown to reduce the mortality of a patient, but I can't give it to you because it's shown to kill you, right? It makes the vasospasm worse. 
in somebody that's having a cocaine-induced MI. So it reduces the oxygen demand again, or it, it reduces the oxygen you're already demanding in the patient as well. So be very, very careful with that as well, okay? Let's say you've already treated the patient now, you give them aspirin, you've given them Plavix, you give them their heparin, you've done everything that you can, um, and then you have to think about the stents. Now let's say, uh, just taking a quick peek into somebody that's an interventional cardiology PA, which again, if you're planning on doing that, I could tell you, especially if you don't do it down here, and you go more north, like I was in, in Orlando, and there the PA is actually in the cath lab with the doctor as well. And on occasion, you get to do the catheterizations if it's not an acute MI. Diagnostic catheterizations were done by the PAs. That was outstanding to me. I was a 24-year-old kid just doing cardiac catheterizations on people and telling them, like, oh, yeah, that looks bad. Kinks. All right. And that's it. All I had to do was just shoot some dye, see where we're going. All right, that's good. This patient's going to need a stent or they're going to need a bypass. You do them again and again and you get to that point, right? Then you have to wonder, what stent do I place on this patient? There's two different types of stents, right? There's drug-eluting stents and there's parametal stents. So drug-eluting stents are great because they um, tend to last a little bit longer because they prevent the, uh, the vasculature from collapsing and restenosing, right, or re-narrowing again so that the right amount of blood flow goes in. So then you're thinking, well, why not just put everybody on a drug-eluting stent? Well, the reason is because the drug-eluting stent, what it's on there, are usually antibiotics like neomycin and things like that. What if the patient is allergic to that antibiotic? Now you cannot give them that drug to the stent, and it has to be a bare metal stent. Believe it or not, bare metal stents then have a 40 to 60% chance of reocluding in 10 years. You still have a reocclusion chance on a, on a drug eluting stent of about 10 to 20%, but again, obviously you're reducing that by putting in that, that medication in there. Um, so again, beta blockers for six months. I'm gonna be telling you honestly, like, these patients are gonna be on this for life, but they have to be there for at least six months. ACE inhibitors for three months. Nitrates if the ischemia remains, like if you still see some sort of heart damage there. And you can see that on even a, uh, a stress test, right? They'll tell you some cell over the wall has some abnormality as well. Um, secondary prevention strategies in place, uh, good luck, right? That just means exercise, diet. You gotta change your life up as well. Um, stable angina, okay? So now the patient is having the chest pain. There is no EKG elevation. There is no troponin enzyme elevation. The patient is able to control this symptom by taking a nitroglycerin or by resting. This is gonna be very stable, uh, very essential in uh, diagnosing these patients as well. Most of the times these patients are going to come in with that type of response and tell you, I have angina, okay? That doesn't mean there's no heart damage. It just means there's still vasoconstriction that happens, but you're able to control it. And stable angina, Believe it or not, I know I said that troponin enzymes are usually negative in these patients, but sometimes they can be mildly elevated, kind of uh, in the signs, at least one third of these patients, they can be mildly elevated in the case where there's some sort of minute damage to the myocardial wall. So you can't see sometimes troponin enzymes elevated, and it's still considered an NSTEMI, a, a non-ST elevated MI in those patients as well. So dresser syndrome is, again, something that we talked, I think one of you guys presented this as well. So a lot of times, what was, what was the reasoning that it takes about seven days or 10 days? Well, who's, who gave a good explanation on this? Who was the patient or the patient, the student that said that? Who did the dresser syndrome case? Who was it? See, raise your hand with pride, man. It was an amazing case. Okay. And so why does it take seven days to develop dresser syndrome? What was the reasoning for that? Huh? The immune response takes that much time, right? So you have to be on top of that. 
So they told you that yes, like this is in your test, it's gonna be somebody that already had a heart attack and now they're having a chest pain, but this chest pain is different. This chest pain feels like it a little bit worse. I had a heart attack about uh, you know a week ago, but it's been fine. They're here for it again. You're gonna run what enzyme? A CKMB. Right, good job. You're gonna run a CKMB. You're gonna run again, hey, this is Drexler syndrome. Let's get an ESR because now there's inflammation on top of that wall, on top of that pericardial wall. And the pain gets better when I lean forward. So this is Drexler syndrome all day, early day, right? So the way the next thing is, how they do this in the exam. Now the exam is gonna tell you, the pants is gonna tell you, this patient had a heart attack, okay? This patient is diagnosed with pericarditis. We gave them the colchicine or the endomethacin for this patient. Now what do we do? They're not getting any better. Now what do we do? What's the second line of treatment for pericarditis? You see, that's where we're getting stuck. Steroids, right? Steroids. I'm telling you, they're done with it. They know you know Dresser syndrome. They know you know the first line of treatment. They think you just took a day off and didn't look at the second line. And that's every single question right now in the pants. They're going after second line treatments left and right. 90 questions almost, I could tell you. 90 questions, that's a third of your exam that's gonna be second line treatment. So go ahead, get lazy, look at first line treatments and move on with your pants and your pants pearls and whatever it is. If you're not reading the whole thing, you're not passing that whole exam. And I'm coming to you with, as, as a friend, as a colleague. Don't play yourself. Don't play yourself. Don't just read pants pearls. Don't just do help campus. Don't just do Raj. Don't just do UWorld. You gotta have at least three resources to get you through this exam. Because real talk, you're here right now, and if you don't pass the pants, you didn't do anything. You did nothing. These, these two years were a waste. You can't waste this. You wasted your money. You wasted your time. You wasted your intellect. You wasted the time here. Don't. Do not take this exam granted. But what, what's the percentage that we had from last year? Do you know? 96, 97, right? The year before. I think 2019 was extremely high, too. Yeah. We don't play here. We don't play. And so we're not here to play around. Pass this thing the first time and move on. Go make your money. Get that bag. Right? Because that's what you came here for. I don't care what you say, how many lives you want to save. You got to get paid. You make zero dollars an hour right now. So even if I gave you a dollar an hour, you make 100% more than what you're doing right now. Right? Non-employment doesn't count. Whatever you got from the government doesn't count. Okay? So cardiac causes of syncope. So I passed out. Anytime somebody passes out, you have to do a troponin enzyme. It, it definitely could be cardiac cause. You have to take a look at it. It could have been an arrhythmia, right? And if it's an arrhythmia, I have to do a chemistry because I need to know, was it hypokalemia? Was it hyperkalemia? If this patient going to torsades, it was probably hypomagnesemia, right? What if there's some sort of obstruction? What if it was an MI? And if it's an old patient that passes out, you have to do a troponin enzyme. It has to be done. Because like I told you, they're not going to get chest pain. They're going to pass out before they can tell you, oh, they're out, done. They can't even hold on to their chest. You miss it. can't miss things. I told you, you're going to get in trouble when you miss things, not when you, not when you get things. Okay, it's really, really important. Okay. Um, what else? Subclavian steel syndrome. This is one of your zebras you have to take a look at as well. Um, and there's multiple things that you need to know about this as well. It's an association between the upper extremity exercise and also if the blood pressure is measured on each arm, there's a difference. 
there's a difference of blood pressure. This is why. I know you talk about it. I know you say, it. I'm going to take the blood pressure in the left and right arm, sitting, standing, and lying down. Okay. You can talk the talk. Can you walk the walk? Because now you need to know why. Why are you going to do it, do it sitting, standing, and lying down? And even now, you still think, now what is, what is orthostatic hypotension? Well, when the blood pressure goes up from sitting up to standing up, right? Wrong. You're wrong. It's from lying down to standing up. Sitting up means nothing. Don't get played. Don't get played. It's from lying down to standing up. And they're going to do that. They're going to do that to you. They're going to say, hey, the blood pressure when they're sitting uh, drops when they stand up. Is this considered high, orthostatic hypertension? You're like, yeah. Learned that in 2021. Good, you learned the wrong thing. Excellent job. You killed somebody else. And that's what this, this exam is. This exam wants to make sure you don't kill nobody. That's what it is. So same thing with, with subclavian steel syndrome. Why are we taking blood pressures in the left and right arm? Why are we looking for the, the difference? Why do we take the blood pressure of somebody in the upper extremities and the lower extremities with the headache? Why? Why? What, what diagnosis? Coarctation of the aorta. And guess what? 10% of patients with coarctation of the aorta also are susceptible to a aneurysm, And that's why that patient has a headache because they just got a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Do you see the levels? that were dissecting little by little by little. I told you something about blood pressure and headache, right? Don't get crossed over, and it sounds like bad, I'm sleeping like basketball. Don't get crossed up on these things. You can't, you got to stay focused. What are they asking me? What happens to somebody with blood pressure differences from upper and lower extremity? Okay, coarctation of aorta. What other complication can happen with a patient with coarctation of the aorta? Oh yeah, aneurysms. That's why you have a headache. That's the exam. I'm telling you right now. And without telling you what's on the exam. That's what's on the exam. Like this. That's it. That's the way they're playing. Those are the plays they're running. So you got to be ready for them. There's one or two questions that are straight up. Like, oh, uh, what makes the S1, S2 sound? Okay? That's, we don't play that no more. Okay? We know mitral valve, tricuspid valve, right? Okay. So, like, we don't play that. That's too easy. Okay? Um... Aortic dissections, you for sure need to know this. For sure need to know this, right? Tearing, tearing pain in the abdomen or in the chest pain that radiates to the back, right? Somebody that was a smoker, somebody that already had an aneurysm, right? Usually somebody that's 40 to, 40 to 60 years old, usually a male, okay? The history of having Marfan syndrome, the history of, well, when I was a kid, they told me my blood pressure were different in the upper and lower extremity. They're not going to tell you coarctation of the aorta. That's too easy. They're going to tell you what they've been through. And you need to tell them what did they go through. And based off that, that's what you know. Bicuspic aortic valve. They also have a systolic ejection murmur, and they're 42 years old. And at that time, they had syncope and heart failure. So you get to like, whoa, I know that that sounds like aortic stenosis, but how can somebody so young come out with aortic stenosis, a bicuspid aortic valve? And then you have to know that they're susceptible to an aortic dissection because you know that it's a systolic ejection murmur heard at the right upper sternal board in the second intercostal space, right? And it doesn't radiate up to the carotids. They'll tell you that. This murmur does not radiate up to the carotids. Does that still mean it's not aortic like stenosis? Of course it is. It still can be. Not everything is black and white. Not everything is going to be just laid out for you. It's not going to happen. Okay? 
So I'm getting like really like excited about the patch, which is like 18 months away. <laughs> but it, you know, I'm just I'm like still refreshing on like pants prep. So pericarditis, the three people that you need to know that can develop this. The one person we we already talked about, right? The guy that already had a, a heart attack, or the lady that already had a heart attack, and now she's still coming in with the same pain seven to ten days later, right? And the pain is this chest pain, but it's a different chest pain, okay? CKMB is normal, troponin enzyme sometimes could be normal as well, right? But in this case, it might not be normal. It might be trending down, right? But this is that patient. The other patient are your lupus patients. An acute flare-up of a lupus patient can also get pericarditis because of the inflammatory responses all over the body can affect the pericardial wall as well, right? The other patient was the more common patient is the young person that just had a recent upper respiratory infection, flu, Coxsackie virus, anything, any upper respiratory infection. How about COVID? And they were going into the heart, like they were getting myocarditis, right, in young patients. And then people were like, well, well, I'm not going to vaccinate my child because it develops myocarditis. Well, good job. Because the people that I saw more get myocarditis were the unvaccinated people that had COVID. And again, I'm not here to push any vaccine on you. I don't get paid either way. But if you know, you know. If you're out there, you know the vaccine's working. It's working. You can tell me whatever you want, however you want. I don't think you should force this on people. I don't think you should, hey, if you don't get vaccinated, you don't get a job. That's stupid. I think that's not what this country is about. Do what you want to do. Like, I, that's my thought on that, and I'm not going to, like, get into it, but you have to explain that to your patients. And that's how I explain it to my patients. Say, hey, look, I'm not going to tell you, like, my political view on this, because I think the fact that this is political is stupid. The fact that I, I don't trust the CDC, because you came up with a different guideline every two weeks. It sounds like you don't know what you're doing. And they don't, because they're not out there. They're not seeing these patients. What are they seeing? The swabs. Oh, that one was positive. That's, it's not numbers. It's not numbers. Stop treating numbers. It's patients. It's what you see. So you tell the patients, even, I mean, forget it. We're talking about COVID. Imagine trying to get their kids vaccinated for MMR and, and for all these other things and trying to explain to them why and why not. You are more likely to develop measles and, and rubella and all these other things. And, and, and instead of like autism, it's not a thing. There's so many studies that prove it wrong. No, and then, so what was the thing before this, right? Uh, well, COVID, because they want to put chips inside you so they can track you. Too late. They're already tracking you. My Instagram knows me better than I know myself. It tells me exactly the clothes I want to wear, exactly the places I want to visit. It'll tell me right now. It's listening to me right now. And I'm, I'm okay with it for whatever reason. I don't know. It's probably going to give me a, an ad on vaccines right now. It's, so what do you mean there's a chip inside you? Nobody cares about you. No, you're, you're one of seven billion people. We're more excited on putting chips on sharks than you. You are less than a fish. Think about that. Don't get excited. Don't get excited. You're nothing. You're nothing. Okay? So we have to get to the point where we're understanding that, right? That's pericarditis. Anyway, so um, <laughs> treating them with NSAIDs, but remember that the refractory thing on this is going to be steroids. We have to give these patients steroids. We also have to make sure that these patients do not develop a pericardial fusion because if there's a pericardial fusion, we could develop a pericardial tamponade, which we're going to talk about as well. And then you have to start doing a, a, a three-leaf window where you start to put a, put a hole into the pericardium and you have to start to drain it all into the lungs. Or you could do a pericardiosynthesis, 
which you'll put in the subxiphoid area of 45 degree angle and start extracting the fluid. This is the one procedure I haven't done in my life and I will not do it. I'm just not, not going to do it because I haven't had the need to. Now, hypertensive cases. So it comes down to the same thing. This is why I love emergency medicine because it basically, or teaching emergency medicine because it's like teaching the ports. It's easy. I teach you everything and what you need to know from it. And the same thing here. What do you need to know about hypertension? Hypertensive, hypertensive urgency versus emergency, right? We know urgency is just a high blood pressure. It's not even a thing, okay? And then we know emergency is when you're actually affecting some sort of organ, right? You're having a headache, so stroke. You're having chest pain, so a heart attack. You're, you're having kidney failure, okay? That's all different things. It's when you start discovering where this blood pressure is coming from. Is it essential, primary, so 90% of the problem? Or is it secondary, is something causing the blood pressure to happen? So renal artery stenosis, activating the angiotensin enzyme stuff, right? Pheochromocytoma, renal failure, right? Other, so many other things that are secondary causes. Those are the emergencies that you need to look out for. And then how do we treat somebody that comes in with high blood pressure? They'll come in all the time. My blood pressure is elevated. It's 170 over 110. No symptoms. So it's an urgency. I don't know if I'm that like excited about treating that blood pressure because it's so easy to treat a number. I can give you 0.1 of clonidine. I can give you Vasotec, 10 milligrams. I can give you Lobetalol. I can give you Diltide. So many medications I have to fix a number. The problem is if I give clonidine, it'll fix the number and they'll drop to 120 over 76 and then what a beautiful number that is. And then you discharge the patient. Unfortunately, their body wants to live at 170 over 110. So that rebound, going right back up to 170 110, that immense reactive or rebound hypertension, stroke. Because you are worried about a number. You can't do that. We don't treat numbers. So you calm the patient down. Being in the ER alone will raise your blood pressure. Being in a cold environment will raise your blood pressure. Having a fight at home is gonna raise your blood pressure, right? Being in some sort of pain is gonna raise your blood pressure. Blood pressure does not cause headaches to happen. It's not a thing. Google it, search it. Blood pressure does not cause headaches. You don't, the symptom is not a headache. Headaches can cause blood pressure though. If you're having a headache, that can cause your blood pressure to go high. But blood pressure causing a headache, you're gonna die. That's a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So if somebody tells you that, and again, we don't ask them, is this the worst headache of your life? We ask you, what's different about this headache? Uh, this headache feels different. I'm nauseous. The, the noises bother me. Your face bothers me. <laughs> right? That happens a lot, by the way. So, and then eventually, you're like, oh, and they're hypertensive? How long has that been going on? Somebody tells you, I've never had blood, blood pressure issues. 170 or 110? Dios mio. And so it's not a joke. No, no. Here's a problem. That's not new. That's chronic. You don't just get there. You just haven't checked your blood pressure. That's all it is. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just hasn't been checked out. And you have to let them know that. Look, I'm not going to be the person. This is emergency medicine, right? I'm not going to be the person to start you on a medication. Why? Because you can't just start them on a medication and think they're going to be okay. What if you started them on the medication and they dropped too low? Or what if it didn't work? Are you going to come see me for a $250 copayment? No. Not going to happen. So you have to tell them, like, look, oh, but I can't see my primary care doctor. Oh, but I ran out of my medication. Sure, I'll give you a refill. But don't make this a habit. 
Because let's be honest, some people don't pay their bill, right? And then, then what, that's okay. You don't pay for it, I don't care. I get paid either way, right? But the problem is, is then you're taking up space for somebody that is needing to be seen, like the MI patient, like the patient that needs to be intubated, the patient that needs to have a chest tube. And that's when, that's the whole problem with what happened with COVID. It wasn't anything, uh, it wasn't that our systems like were, were bad. It's that we can't handle the nonsense stuff when the real stuff is happening. How many people died of an MI because the patients were filling up the waiting room for a cough and spreading it? And we did everything. I mean, I'm, I'm too, I was in a NASA suit for 12 hours a day, sweating my butt off, and to the point where I was just like, yo, just give this thing to me. I can't do this anymore. And that's how I got COVID the first time. <laughs> and then it was a vacation for 10 days, and it was awesome. Then I got it again. <laughs> that was not fun. So you have to know when to treat this patient. Now, if they're up there at 180 over 110 and you've taken it on the left arm and the right arm and sitting and standing and lying down and it's not getting any better, maybe give them a little bit of medication and monitor them. Don't just send them home. Monitor them. Especially if you join like groups like, uh, I know it sounds bad. I don't think it's bad by anybody. Like Kendra Regional, right? Or any HCA group, right? They're, yo, get them in, get them out. What do you mean wait to see how they're doing? We'll find out when they come back. What? Because they don't care about your license. Right? Now, listen, I, I still wear this with pride, believe it or not, because I like their ICU. I think their ICU is second to none. I'm talking about I will have Baptist. These people are better. Trust me. If you're going to be in, in ID ICU, then go to Kendra Regional. The only problem with that is got to go to the ER in order to go to the ICU. So just, that's like me. Right. Anyway, so the treatment of hypertension in the emergency department. So then maybe, yeah, you could treat the urgency. But if you're doing that, we have to be careful of how fast, again, like I said, how fast you bring down the blood pressure. You bring it down too fast, it's going to be rebound and it's going to cause a stroke, right? So you want to bring it out down about 25% per hour. That's why you have to monitor the patient. How much is it going down by? Little by little by little, okay? Watch, what symptoms are you How are you feeling? What are your symptoms? I'm feeling good. Everything's fine. And sometimes there are symptoms, like, yeah, I get this burning sensation. Yeah, because the heart is beating hard, not fast, hard, right? Then what medication do you use? Well, look at the heart rate. You don't want to give them a beta blocker if it's too low of a heart rate, right? And what medications do they already take? Maybe they forgot to take Losartan. Give them Losartan. See how that helps. And no, it doesn't help with acute blood pressure, but what if it does? What if it's just that they're missing a blood pressure pill and you monitor them, see what happens? If it doesn't go out then, then yes. I very rarely use clonidine, very rarely, because it's direct vasodilator. Now, the vasodilator that I do like to use is hydrolyzine. Hydrolyzine is great. And usually the dose is 20 milligrams. I'll give like 10 milligrams and watch them, just watch them, take it easy. What blood work do I do? I still do a Chem 7, make sure there's not no secondary causes. I'll do a urine, make sure there's no proteinuria, right? I don't do troponin enzymes. For what? People love doing troponin enzymes and EKGs on hypertension. What? What are you looking for? It's not going to happen. I'll do a chest x-ray, make sure there's not an aortic dissection, right? You're fine. You don't need to get, like, too crazy with these things. These are the hypertensive emergencies, right? Kind of like what we talked about glomerular nephritis renal artery stenosis, there's pheochromocytomas, so many different things, thyrotoxicosis, so look at that. Look at all the things. You have to consider all these things. 
What's going on with these patients? What medications do you take? What are you supposed to be on? How often do you take it? Did you miss the dose? Did you not take any at all? Can you afford it? Can you not? And then you have to have resources in the back of your mind. Well, it's lisinopril, but I can't afford it. Good. Publix has that for free. And pick up a pubs up while you're at it. Bring the blood pressure right back up. Okay? So abdominal aortic aneurysms. Okay? So usually these patients are going to be asymptomatic. And you really don't need to know much about these in the emergency room unless they get to a, a 5.4. I know it says here 5 centimeters. But 5.4 or more. Okay? And usually we have to know what's modest. In the emergency room, when we find abdominal aortic aneurysms, are usually incident-based. Like, I found it by accident, okay? Anything more than 5.4 needs surgery stat immediately. That needs immediate, like, recovery. Or if you find the aortic aneurysm and you find that it's, like, 3.5 last year and today is 4.2, call vascular surgery. Because any increasing of size of 0.5 centimeters in six months or one centimeter in one year has to be followed up and has to have some sort of surgical evaluation. So the rate at what it grows and the, uh, the part of what it grows. So anything more than 5.4 needs to be evaluated. Anybody else, if they have abdominal pain, you show up with, with an abdominal aortic aneurysm, does need to be admitted. You gotta make sure it's not that. You have to. Okay, and they present with the triad of a pulsating mass, right, abdominal pain, and, and hypotension or hypertension has to be evaluated immediately. We have to get them to uh, be evaluated by um, vascular surgery. Those patients, again, you're going to bring, this is the one person that you do not care how fast you bring that blood pressure down. Same thing with the aortic dissection patient. If you have an aortic dissection patient, screw the 25% per hour thing. Bring it down, keep it down. In fact, give them a beta blocker because we want to keep their heart rate down as well. Okay? Bring it down. But be ready. Be ready for it to get, get going. Okay? Because the worst thing that can happen to this patient is something happening in the ER. Because now we have to rush them to vascular surgery. Pull somebody out of the OR at the mid-surgery. These are things that happen. This is when it gets real. You got to know the easy stuff so that when the real stuff gets down, when it hits the fan, you got to know how to fly. And, and sometimes you just got to be ready to call whoever you need to, whoever you want. Usually after these cases, you end up calling your family members like, hey, is everything okay? You good? Because it gets real like that, especially in the emergency room, man. Talk, talk. I think in any profession, like therapy is so underlooked. Talk. Because you're going to be seeing some things that you're going to go to sleep crying sometimes and you can't hold on to it. You got to let it go. You got to see. We do this for, especially when it's a pediatric patient, unfortunately. When somebody pediatric and you work them up and, and, and this one, the beauty of my emergency room that I don't have to deal with this with like a lot of pediatric patients. But in other pediatric ERs and things like that, the next day, if not that shift, they'll have somebody debrief you like, hey, if you need anything, let us know. At that moment, you're not going to need anything. You're going to feel okay. You're going to be, heart rate's going to be fast. You're going to be okay. You're going to be fine. And, but it's that four or five hours later, you're like, whoa, what just happened? Dude, this kid just died. This 36, 37-year-old just died. And I didn't save their life. What am I doing? How am I doing this? What could have I done? Don't ever leave a room. Don't ever leave a patient's room thinking about what could have I done. Don't ever do that. 
That's why you put everything out on the table. Ask. Anybody else have any other ideas? What else are you thinking? And the, and the idea will come from like a tech sometime. That's been there for 10 years, but you've been a PA for three years. It's happened to me. Hey, did we consider this? Yeah, good call. Let's go. No problem with that. Please do not have a problem when the idea comes from the janitor. Who cares? It's an idea. Like they could be in the back like cleaning. Oh yeah, it's happened to my grandmother, by the way. You guys want to check the O2 sat? Simple things like that, because you're so high, you're so like wound up on everything that you'll miss things. Everything's going super fast. And it is. It is going fast. Just just be ready for the idea to come. Be ready to ask. Like yeah, you some most of the times you're not running the code, but there might be a time when you are and you run the code. Okay. Alright guys, what do you got? Okay, what's what else is going on? Like there's been times when I have to intubate because the doctor's not able to get in. She's not feeling it for whatever reason. It's fine. It's okay. Nobody loses anything. Only the patient gains. Who cares? Go in there. Don't walk out there and be like, I have to do it for the doctor. Bro. No, it's cool. I, I legit went back. I'm like, hey, you good? Don't worry about it. We'll get them next time. Let's go. You're intubated now. Let's keep going. Because guess what? There's another one dying. We don't have time. We don't have time. And, and especially if you see a colleague next to you, don't be that. I mean, it was me multiple times. Like, damn, like, yo, I can't believe I missed this. I can't. And, and it happens. Like, if you've ever worked with me or ever seen me in life, like, I wear my feelings on my sleeves and my face. Like, you know, I'm pissed. You know, I'm. Not, I can't. I don't. I'm telling you. Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. But in the back, I'm like, <laughs> and it's not good to do that. I learned this from my therapist. By the way, get a therapist. <laughs> you know? So you have to be okay with that. Uh, no transition into this either. DVTs. Okay. So um, you have to have this as your as your differential. We do so many ultrasounds courtesy of the urgent cares. Okay. The urgent cares constantly will send you patients. Hey, they have leg pain. Can't rule out a DVT. And you know it's not a DVT. You know it's not. But you're going to be really in a lot of trouble if you don't do it. How do you know it's not without doing an ultrasound? Simple. Did you travel anywhere? Okay. Did you have any sort of injuries? Do you, take, do you smoke? Any hormonal replacement therapy? Have you had a DVT in the past? Virchow's triad. I just went through all of it. Hypercoagulability. Venous injury. Venous stasis. I did all that. So that tells me the likelihood of this being a DVT is probably very low. Right? Very low. But I'll do it anyway. Because it sometimes comes down to the perception of what the patient is expecting and the expectation that has been set from the prior provider. They're gonna go to the, you're gonna go to the ER and you're gonna get an ultrasound. I'm not gonna sit here and be like, and we have this problem all the time in the ER. Why are you guys sending us this? I don't say that, I'm like, hey, thanks for sending me this, appreciate it. You're keeping me in business. Because if not, I'm here sometimes, right? Oh, left, low, left leg pain sent by the urgent care. That's, the, that's gonna be the chief complaint every time. Hey, what's going on? Yeah, they think you have a blood clot and I'm really worried about them. Oh yeah, don't worry about it, we got you. I'm gonna look at the whole leg. And that's, that's selling the hell out of an ultrasound because that's what you're supposed to do. You don't just do it of the cap. You don't just do it ephemeral. We're gonna make sure that there's no blood clot anywhere in this leg. And the greater savannas to the common femoral, to the popliteal, everywhere. We're gonna look at everything. Ah, oh, thank you so much. How much calmer does a patient feel now? They've been set with this motivation that this is a blood clot. 
And they hear it. It's a thing now. Did you hear about that 46-year-old? She died by a blood clot. She was so young. Right? You hear it all the time. All the time. Why would you want to be the person to like discount that? Just do it. What did you lose? Remember, you get paid either way. Doesn't matter. You don't get paid extra, you don't get paid less. Just do it. Just do it. And if the physician fights you, here you go. I think they need it. What's wrong if we do it? What happens? <coughs> what do we do? You're going to miss out on one patient? No. We're good. Have them sit next to me while they're getting the ultrasound. I don't care. It doesn't matter. You can't miss this. And then when you find it, you have to think about, all right, what do I do for this? You're going to do a D-dimer on somebody that you suspect something? No. Just do the ultrasound. The D-dimer is going to dictate if you should do an ultrasound or a CT angiogram. Why? Just do the ultrasound. Why are you waiting for the thing? It's probably going to be negative. I get, I get you. It could be negative. But don't, don't get into that business. Just do the ultrasound. Let, let the, the ultrasound tech make some money too. Everybody. Everybody eats. Right? And then you're like, well, what about the lab person? We can do a D-dimer? No, stop. Take it easy. You can't all eat. <laughs> all right? Just take it easy. All right? So you have to understand that even then, when we do the ultrasound, it's only got a 94% predictive value. So you can tell them, like, hey, if you don't get any better and you see more swelling or you're having pain, and I know you know the home inside, it may or may not work. Calf tenderness, right, the squeeze test, may or may not work. You have to be ready. You have to be ready. Think about the risk factors the patient comes in with. Yeah, the person that they go after, that the board absolutely hates on the exam, that they pick on all the time, are females that smoke and take birth control pills. They hate them. They hate them. How dare you take birth control and smoke? Especially with what's going on now, right? Because your body, my choice. I understand that, by the way. You get it. Anyway, so what do you do? You do an ultrasound to make sure that there's no DVT. Any DVT that is above the knee is going to get admitted. Okay, it's not just... You could start them on Eloquis, which has been the play rate lately. Um, be careful when you're thinking about warfarin, things like that. If it's somebody that's going to fall down often, you don't want to give them, you know, Pradaxa and Eloquis and, and Zeralta. That's not going to be the play, okay? Uh, so be very mindful of that. Um, again, you'll do a CBC because we need to monitor what? In the CBC. What do I need for the CBC if I'm going to treat somebody with DVT? The platelets, right? Because I'll, if I'm going to treat them with heparin, i got to see if there's going to be thrombocytopenia. <laughs> Right, and then the PTT is going to be important because I got to bridge them over eventually to uh, I, uh, to warfarin or not. Now I don't need the PTT INR and all these things for Zeralta and all these because that's not the cascade that they follow. But what if I do need it? So just do it just in case. Okay, um, Camp Seven. Obviously, you need to make sure the creatinine clearance is right. You need to make sure that there's no other. You know, some of these medications they require you to have a GFR in place as well. So all these things are important. Um, I already told you to remember how the, the best way to remember the 10A inhibitors are basically they all have XA, Apixaban, and you know, Zeralta has XA, Prodacta has XA. So, you know, just remember that's how you remember that. Okay. Uh, then we're going to stop here because we discussed this on Monday. What slide number are we on? 148. Oh, that's right there. Is that in the middle of 96? No. That wasn't too fast, right? Pretty informative. All right. Pretty informative.